You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? I can't believe that you're in love with me. I hate the thought of being so far away from you, but we'll be together again someday. I'm on your mind each place you go. I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world. A woman. Hey, you! Come on if you want to ride. What's your name? You can call me Vera if you like. There's a folding bed behind this door. You know how to work it? I just can't imagine that you love me. Just remember who's boss around here. If you shut up and don't give me any arguments, you'll have nothing to worry about. I'm the lucky one. I can't Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you, what could they do to me? Give a lift to a tomato, you expect it to be nice, don't you? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Not much of a talker, are you? We're also joined once again this week by Noir Gadfly Richard Edwards. Hi, thanks for having me. We're continuing to get Noir in November with the 1945 film from Edgar Ulmer, Detour. Now, this one is almost 70 years old, and it's available for free via archive.org. You can find it on YouTube and many other places. So we will be getting into spoiler territory on this episode. If you haven't seen Detour and don't want anything to be ruined, turn this podcast off now. Go watch the film and come back. We'll still be here. Detour is the story of Al Roberts, a down-on-his-luck guy who's thumbing his way from New York to Los Angeles for a reunion with his gal, Sue. Along the way, he thumbs a ride with the wrong guy and runs across the wrong gal, that Spitfire Vera. The film was shot in less than two weeks on a shoestring budget. Why is this cheap little Poverty Row thriller that doesn't even run for 70 minutes and is nearly 70 years old is still being talked about today? I hope we can answer that question before this episode is through. So, Rich, I have a question for you. When did you first see Detour and what did you think? Well, it's a great question. Um, I don't actually remember the first time I actually saw it. I think part of it has been that... Uh, when I was in film school, I actually never saw a copy of this film projected because of the difficulty of securing a clean 35 millimeter master. So it would have been on one of those DVD box sets where Detour was just one of 40 public domain films all thrown together. And I had to just because I, you know, I own about 10 different box sets like that in my collection. I just would have stumbled across it as like film number eight on DVD number three. And I remember just sitting back that it just didn't feel like any of the other films that were on those DVDs. It really, from the first time I ever saw it, it stood out even before I really had a lot of background about the film. I had heard of the film. I was familiar with it. I believe there was a documentary I'd seen years ago that Martin Scorsese did where he highlighted certain films that he liked. And I remember this was one of them, and the other was the other Ulmer film was The Black Cat with uh, Bela Lugosi and, and Karloff. And I hadn't seen it before now. And 
watched it for the show and also watched the basically i guess the reimagining of it as well for the episode and i have to say that even though as you said it's almost 70 years old it still really holds up really well keeps your attention and i think it's it has to be in the list of you know real classic sort of uh, noir films and especially with that ending I saw this one in either 93 or 94 in like uh, Com 411 or something like that. And my teacher in that one didn't show a whole lot of movies. She was more about television and uh, how media does this, that, and the other thing. I remember she played Personal Best of all films. So that's the only time I've ever seen Personal Best. But she also played Detour. And I was blown away. I mean, this little movie has stuck with me for all these years, and there were lines and scenes. I almost felt like I didn't need to rewatch this movie just because it had kind of seared itself into my brain. And it felt very surreal when I was watching it the first time. There were certain things that happened in it where I'm like, did that just happen? Am I seeing what I'm supposed to be seeing? And... I almost appreciated the distance of memory to uh, further obfuscate those things and make them seem even more dreamlike and, and more distant. Uh, rewatching this again recently, I was like, yep, that's exactly what I remember. And I, it's just as strange today as it was when I watched it all those years ago. So let's get into a little bit. We start with a typical film noir fashion. We uh, are in the present and go into the past. In this one, the present is Tom Neal sitting in a diner and listening to some uh, music. Uh, we've got some diner patrons there who are kind of snappy talking. And at one point, one of the patrons puts on the song that casts him immediately back to where he was when he used to play this song. He's a musician, and we start to get his voiceover. So we've got both the flashback and the voiceover, which are great noir conventions and get to hear him talking about the old days when it was him playing piano with some really quick jazz hands and uh, we, with his best gal, Sue, in this uh, New York club, the Break of Dawn club. And, man, it just uh, – we, we don't waste very much time before we get right into the meat of the story. Well, there's not a lot of time that's ever wasted in the 67-minute film. And I think what – is great about the opening of this film is that Ulmer really infuses that opening scene, if you pay attention to it closely, with just really unexpected artistry. While if people read about this film online or in various books, it, they'll constantly be talking about this being a low-budget, uh, rapidly produced film, I think it's a mistake to think that that's the equivalent of an artistically inexpert film being made. Because if you watch the opening eight minutes of this film, which is really just a fairly simple, simple scene set in that wonderful noir space of the 1940s, the roadside diner, um, you just start to appreciate what Ulmer as an artist and a technician was able to bring to the film. And I'd point out particularly the use of lighting in this scene and pay close attention to how Ulmer lights Tom Neal's face in the scene because that's part of what gets us into that dreamlike space that we'll inhabit for most of this film's running time. 
Yeah, when that light changes on his face, I mean, not only are we getting the you know, the the sound mix kind of changing as he goes into this other space to start talking about this flashback and his past and everything, but the way that that light changes on his face and the way that the camera is kind of guiding us, and we'll get this later on in the film too, the way that the camera is kind of almost this more subjective camera. There's one point where it's kind of his point of view, but kind of not, and at this point, we're looking right at him and yeah that light change from it just being kind of a nice flatly lit diner kind of scene into this kind of chiaroscuro mess going across his face as he's just you know intensely looking into the past looking into himself and we've got that song playing that just kind of takes him away into what used to be a better life for him did you ever want to forget anything did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out you can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. You can change the scenery, but sooner or later you'll get a whiff of perfume where somebody will say a certain phrase or maybe hum something. Then you're licked again. I can't believe that you're in love with me. I used to love that song once. So did the customers back in the old Break at Dawn Club in New York. I can't remember a night when I didn't get at least three requests for it. Sue, she was always selling it too. Those were the days. And then even after that, once we get him and Sue in New York and they're having their gay old time and everything, when they leave that break of dawn club and they're walking along in those New York streets, I mean, I know, again, this is kind of done for, you know, a little bit of we don't really have the sets, so we're going to kind of blot them out with some fog, but... My God, the fog, the smoke that they walk through on these city streets is just amazing in the way that we kind of, again, through this whole idea of just economy, just getting them from one place to another using the street signs and that kind of like the the background where we can see people but kind of not quite for for sure there's a cop standing there at one point and he's just kind of blotted out by this gray fog and it is just amazing to look at and that fog too for me is not only as you were saying a way to do it on the cheap because maybe they only had like 50 feet of wall to decorate and they couldn't you know they had to do it in cuts is also sort of plays up the idea i think of the fog between them there's this you know things are getting uh obfuscated things are sort of being put upon them they're not things aren't as clear as they used to be in terms of their relationship and it and i think that the use of that like i said not only works to the economy of the picture but also works to the the, the feeling as you were saying in terms of this expressionistic use of lighting and other things in the film Right. And it goes even one step deeper than that, Rob, which is I love the fact that this is all being told as a flashback in Tom Neal's memory. And I always read that fog as him attempting to compile this memory because we're not watching these things even in cinematic time in anything remotely uh, realistic. Um, this is his memory of being back at the break of dawn because the film opens literally at the ending of the film. And that's where I think you really start to see the craftsmanship of someone like Ulmer. He was really obsessed with telling a great story. And if anyone hasn't seen Detour, what I think people take away and why it really becomes like this film that's a fever memory the way that it was for Mike when he was introducing the film, it's because 
Ulmer knows the material he's working with. And this really is ultimately Al's story and what is driving all of the narrative is being told to us all in flashback. And so the fog to me is very appropriate as a kind of fuzzy memory um, that he's reconstructing for us because the narration is really all pointed towards us in the audience. We're the privileged listeners, but we ultimately have to decide whether or not, you know, what it is that Al's actually telling us in the story. And we've got this revelation that just kind of comes out of nowhere for us, the audience, and also for Al Roberts, the Tom Neal character, where Sue Harvey, uh, who's played by Claudia Drake, announces to him. That's the third time you started to tell me something and then stopped. We shouldn't have any secrets from each other, Sue. Next week we're going to make with the ring and the license. You and me will be a team. Yes, that's right. In the Bush League. I don't get you. We've been struck out. It's a funny way to talk, darling. Don't you want to marry me? Al, look, I love you. You know I do, and I want to marry you. But? But not now. Only after we've really good. Sunday I'm going away. Oh, I know you'll think it's silly. That's why I hesitated to tell you. But I'm going to California. I want to try my luck in Hollywood. That's the most stupid thing I ever heard of. Don't you know millions of people go out there every year and wind up polishing cuspidors? I thought you had better sense. You sound as if you don't think I have any talent. That has nothing to do with it. I'll make out all right. Maybe. But what about me? Doesn't it mean anything to you that you're busting up all our plans? We may not see each other for years. It won't be that long. I thought you loved me. I do. You know I do. And this is just a ton of bricks that hits this guy. And I really am uh, not surprised at how he takes it because this is suddenly coming up that she is just going to be jetting across the country in a uh, manner of speaking, going across the country and trying her dreams in the uh, Hollywood dream factory. Sorry, uh, Al, it's been really nice knowing you and uh, let's kind of stay friends and everything or, or boyfriend and girlfriend, but I'm going to be clear across the other side of the world here for you. So sorry about that. So we get him, I don't know how much time really kind of elapses between him pining away for Sue and him deciding to go out and see her. There is some interesting talk about him kind of uh, being at the club and he's doing this kind of interesting variation on Brahms where it kind of becomes this boogie-woogie number and then kind of goes back to it and he ends up getting a $10 tip. And I don't know if that's kind of what puts him on this path because that he uses that or at least you know that is kind of the uh, impetus for him to give Sue a call in a very bizarre phone call where he just talks and we get like one cut away to her and she never says a word <laughs> which is just a, a great kind of conversation and again i think it it definitely plays into that sweet spot you're talking about rich as far as his memory of this and maybe he doesn't remember what she said so she doesn't say a, a damn word and i think it's just a little bit of a, a shot that they're going to use later on in the film and they just kind of transposed it over here well i mean i think that goes a little bit towards uh goldsmith's screenplay because in the screenplay goldsmith in the novel that's adapted by ulmer for this film sue is supposed to have a lot of different subplots and i always feel that that first phone call that really seems oddly truncated speaks to ulmer's desire to just really dispense with the sue subplot altogether because at the end of the day what makes detour such a fantastic film is going to be the relationship between Al 
and Vera. And Sue, in many cases, is really an afterthought, especially by the end of uh, the film. It's less so, of course, in the novel. And I think the other part that you bring up is I don't know a film that I love more for not lingering on any of the motives for why things happen from one moment to the next, because you're right. In literally this three-minute throwaway scene, we have the entire reason for why he's going cross-country, and it's ludicrously underdeveloped. I mean, if we're talking about this from like a screenwriting standpoint, I mean, there's like no genuine motivation. He's given a $10 bill, and he looks at it and goes, oh, now I've got an idea that maybe I should go join my fiance in Los Angeles. But I think that's part of the charm of this film is this isn't a film that's ever going to linger on inessential information. And like most of the best noir, there is something that is propelling the story forward that is more than just classical storytelling. I was shocked when I read the novel of this to know that Sue and Al, I mean, the the story goes back and forth between the, the two of them. We are kind of one chapter of Al, one chapter Sue, back and forth between them as we go through this entire thing, because she is just such a an afterthought in the film, and she is dispensive so quickly. I mean, that dialogue that we get from them as they're walking through the fog, that's pretty much it for Sue. I mean, she doesn't get very much more than that in in the movie. And yeah, the book was just filled with stuff. The screenplay that that Goldsmith adapted his own screenplay, and then Almer just kind of readapted that, said, I'm going to take the best bits of this. And Sue is just, man, she's not there at all. But you're right, it is. It does become the Al and Vera story, though Vera doesn't even show up in the movie until half an hour in, which in a 70-minute movie, you know, it's almost halfway through the film before she even shows up. What we have, rather than than Vera, for a longer time is this character, Charles Haskell Jr., who's played by Ed McDonald, and he is one of the guys that picks up Al. He's pretty much the only one we really see any sort of interaction with, as Al is thumbing his ride across uh, America here. Not having too much luck in one point in the book. They're talking about how he got thrown in the jug, but in uh, the movie, they don't necessarily talk about that. But Al's definitely looking pretty worse for wear by the time that we see Haskell picking him up. And then the relationship between him and Haskell, I mean, for me, talking about screenwriting, this is some of the dialogue for me that just cooks. I love this whole interchange between these two guys as they're going you know, across country. Well, the only thing I wanted to add was go back just a bit to the whole Sue plot, and I think that if she was in there more, it would actually, I think, distract and take away from the final film, because we get the feeling that he's motivated by some sort of obsession, or he just wants to be with her, and it's very simple. And what she's doing is kind of beside the point, because as you were saying, it's all out of his memory. It's all out of his own motivation. So the fact that she is sort of elusive and not really fully explained allows us as the audience to kind of fill in those gaps, because we see them in the club, and there's a couple of moments, and then it's... I'm going, and then it's like, well, I'm going to follow you. So, so I thought, I thought that actually kind of works. I think if she was in there more, it would actually maybe take away from that and make it less strong. Yeah, we would have had to have had not only more of Sue, but then also given Sue a voiceover, because otherwise there's no way if this is Al's story, Al's flashback, Al's memory, 
that she's even going to be able to have a voice because he just doesn't see her while she's there. And it all has to be kind of interpreted through what Al is experiencing. So to have more Sue just wouldn't fit with the way that this film is, is structured ultimately, just that this is the Al story. It's interesting to me that when we see this montage before Haskell picks him up, there's a, a part where he's thumbing his way across country and he seems to be on the wrong side of the road for me. Were you guys kind of picking up on this, that he's he should be on one side, but he seems to be on the other? And there's even a part where we see this, I guess it's like a farmer or somebody driving him, and the farmer's sitting on the right-hand side rather than on the left-hand side. Is that just like, um, did they have cars back then that were more British than American? To me, it looks like someone flipped the negative, but I don't know if that's true or not, because it's like, yeah. why is he getting it on that side of the car? Yeah, I mean, the, the the story that's generally told about that is when Ulmer started filming, he actually was filming all of the uh, car scenes left to right. But then someone in the production mentioned that the action in the film is actually moving right to left because it's moving from New York to L.A. And so he uh, flipped the negative so that it would look like the car was actually traveling west as opposed to traveling east. At this point, it's hard to say, but there is no doubt that uh, a lot of people, and it's some of my favorite, I think, very erroneous data about this film. You know, some people even thought scenes were shot in Britain, which would be absurd because they wouldn't have had uh, the budget for that. Trust me, if he had the budget to get to England, he wouldn't have been spending his time just shooting rear projection car scenes. But yeah, I, I think that's one of the elements that people point to to say this is what happened with Poverty Row films, that they were shot so quickly that mistakes like that could not be undone. The other way, of course, to look at it, uh, the way that I prefer, is that as in any story that has limitations and constraints, Omer always in the final instance made the strongest choice for the story. And I think there's something amazingly gripping about flipping the negative versus reshooting it. There's something left in the film that we can still pick up on today. So I would put it more in the category of a happy accident that if people do pick up on it, it just, again, gives one more element of weirdness to this otherwise uh, sublimely wonderful film. Haskell and Al traveling across country. I love the line that Al has about, you know, Emily Post ought to write a book of rules for guys thumbing rides. Because as it is now, you never know what's right and what's wrong. We rode along for a little while, neither one of us saying anything. I was glad of that. I never know what to say to strange people driving cars. Then, too, you can never tell if a guy wants to talk. A lot of rides have been cut short because of a big mouth. So I kept my mouth shut until he started opening up finally they kind of strike up this conversation and they're going to start ride sharing and they have this meal together which is the first meal really that um al has had in a long time i mean he's looking pretty uh you know he's got like quite a few days growth of beard he's looking very ragged and everything and haskell is very much you know put together he's uh definitely carrying a lot of money with him picking up al's meal for him and everything so al's at one point um you know at least in the book he's thinking about you know what would it be like if i conked this guy in the head and took his role 
But luckily, he doesn't have to do that. They're driving along after this great meal. It starts raining. Next thing you know, Al's like, we should put up the top because it's starting to rain in the car. Haskell's just not moving at all. And he pulls over on the side of the road to put the top up on the car. Opens up that door to I don't know what, and Haskell falls out, conks himself right on the head uh, with a rock that's just very conveniently placed. And this was one of those moments when I saw this the first time. I was like, so is he dead beforehand? Is he dead now? What the hell just happened? I had no idea. And then that Al just immediately just jumps into this whole like crazy mindset where it's like, I saw it once he was dead, and I was in for it. Who would believe he fell out of the car? Why, if Haskell came too, which of course he couldn't, even he would swear I conked him over the head for his dough. Yes, I was in for it. Instinct told me to run, but then I realized it was hopeless. There were lots of people back down the road who could identify me. That gas station guy and the waitress. I would be in a worse spot then, trying to explain why I beat it. The next possibility was to sit tight and tell the truth when the cops came. But that would be crazy. He'd laugh at the truth. Not have my head in the noose. So what else was it to do but hide the body and get away in the car? I couldn't leave the car there with him in the gully. That would be like erecting a tombstone. And he just like immediately takes the worst case scenario and just spins it into this mad narrative, this self-narrative of, oh my God, I am done for because this guy happened to die while I was driving with him. And it just ends up like he thinks everyone's going to think that he was a murderer. So I got to dispose of this body right now. He just does the worst thing that he can possibly do. Yeah. And and I think uh, to, to just build on that point, that's always one of those moments that I always wonder why Al makes some of the choices he makes, because if Haskell's really just dying a natural death, I mean, he really should just flag down an officer of the law and just say, the guy I was hitching with has died of natural circumstances. And some of his logic that that story would be unbelievable would be completely backed up by any autopsy. He didn't do anything to actually murder um, Haskell. And it points to a couple different things that just, again, I find enjoyable about this particular story. I really sometimes wonder just how much I can trust Al's narration, because this is all happening in flashback, and it's all happening as a story being told by Al. And we get into a classic situation, just how much do we believe Al's story? I mean, in fact, this might be some type of psychoanalytic rationalization that, in fact, he did do something to Haskell, and this is just his way kind of in almost a Hitchcockian frame of repression saying, this is how I'm going to tell this story because I really am not that guy. And or the other way to look at it again is that this isn't really a film that I've ever spent a lot of time thinking about in terms of plot, because what energizes me every time I watch this film is the moment he makes that decision The final, say, 44 or so minutes of the film are just stunningly stupendous and internally consistent that something kind of bizarre shifts at that moment. Like the first half of the film, there's a whole series of what ifs and those what ifs all start to dissipate into actually, you know, the Al and Vera story that really is less about choices that Al really has any sort of power to make because of the domination of the absolutely once 
in a lifetime performance of Ann Savage's Vera. So let's get to that performance. It doesn't take very long before Al makes this really stupid decision. I'm going to take the place of Haskell. He takes his clothes, takes his money, takes everything, gets in the car, takes care of Haskell's body, and off he goes and picks up Vera pretty soon thereafter. And then it's kind of interesting to me because like you were saying, as far as this whole idea of this kind of memory repression and, and, and how are we interpreting this story through Al? It's interesting to me that Vera gets in the car, everything's kind of hunky dory. She falls asleep. And then kind of like Haskell didn't do, she wakes up and she is almost the voice from beyond the grave at this point, because as soon as she wakes up, she is just like, where's the guy who owned this car what's going on and she just becomes that voice that inner dialogue that al had of this is what people are going to think suddenly she becomes that voice and it is just like what did you do with this guy where's his body what happened and just lays into him and he tries to explain it which they very well they do off screen him explaining the whole story and she just doesn't seem to buy it. She still still thinks that he's a murderer and who really cares? You are now under my power. And she just becomes this kind of force of nature, this kind of harpy that has just like got her claws into his shoulders. And she is just going to ride him for the rest of this film. And I absolutely love it. And just the way, I mean, this Anne Savage, uh, you couldn't get a better name for this actress. Anne Savage's performance as Vera, just the way she spits that dialogue into his face all the time. She is like the ultimate femme fatale for me. And I just have to piggyback on that point, Mike, because I just love the way you phrased that. And I, and you kind of helped crystallize something in my mind that I think I frequently overlook when I'm watching this film. We always talk about Detour as this really amazing film noir. But of course, at the point that Edgar Ulmer is making this film, the term film noir is really not in popular cir- uh, circulation. The term's really not coined in any meaningful sense until 1946, a year after the production of this film. And the way you talked about Vera there reminds me that the director of The Black Cat, the classic Karloff Lugosi film that Rob mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, that it's a moment where the tone of the film shifts into horror. I mean, this is a moment straight out of universal 1930s horror films. And Vera is this kind of avenging angel figure. And she is galvanizing. And part of her power is that kind of horror power that we associate with characters like Dracula, that they are such an embodiment of power, they end up consuming this other character in the film, like Vera consumes Al. You know, she's sort of like every man's worst nightmare. She's very erratic, and it's almost like, um, like, like this. If if we would have had more of the relationship in the first part of the film with him and Sue, which we do have a little bit, but not a lot, you can sort of interpret that maybe this might be the the uh, sort of the funhouse mirror version. That if that one was good and everything was lovely, as he says in the voiceover, that this one is sort of the the, the marriage that's gone wrong. And how he relates to Vera. And there's moments with her where she's trying to be tender with him. And it's like, hey, you know, you should you should come over here. Or you should come with me. And he's like, Ugh, you know, like, get away from me. I'm not in the mood for that right now. And there's 
just the these fights and this like power play between them. So like I said, I sort of saw them as like as mirrored versions of of relationships that he's had that is two different relationships, although this one's much more um I guess you could say conniving and brutal. Yeah, you get the feeling like there there are those weird moments where she is trying to be tender, but she's been just such a a this crazed. I'm sorry, I keep going back to the word harpy, but just she's just been that way to him for so much, and just you know constantly throwing it out to him like I could call the cops at any minute, da 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 da, and then she kind of just turns on the syrup and. It's like you almost expect him, maybe he would fall for it once and she would just laugh him, you know, right out of the bedroom or whatever. But it's just, yeah, she just vacillates so much, just so wildly in her tone toward him and everything. It's just like, oh, my God, what is going on here? And it just kind of even, you know, kicks that up a notch as far as this whole idea of what is Al telling us and what do we necessarily believe? You know, would she go from being this complete bitch to this, you know, trying to get love from him at one point and then, you know, nothing. But so we, we get all the way into Los Angeles. We have several things going on. This whole idea that they're going to sell his car, the Haskell's car, and then Al will be free of her forever, free of Vera. And then he'll be able to find Sue and just, kind of go on with everything unfortunately things change when they when vera finds a newspaper article that charles haskell senior is at death's door and they're looking for the sun so she gets this crazy idea again this like the uh, almost as crazy if not crazier of all the things that were running through al's head when uh, haskell died she gets this idea like oh Al, you'll just pretend to be Haskell and you'll go and you'll collect all this money from this dying man or dead man. You need to continue on with this charade. And he, you know, again, it's like every reason in the book why this wouldn't work, but she still insists that it's going to. And it just becomes this whole roundabout kind of dialogue again where they're just going on and on. But rather than Al having all this stuff in his head, it now he has this other person, and I'm putting person in quotation marks because it's almost like she's a figment of his imagination where it's just going on and on and on. Like, you should do this. No, I shouldn't. Here's the reason why I shouldn't, but you should because we can get this money and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like just craziness. And this kind of goes on a little bit too long for me, which is kind of weird to say that in a movie that's only 70 minutes long, this part kind of drags for me when they're kind of stuck together in this apartment together. And uh, But I think it also kind of works just because it is like Al is there by himself and just torturing himself. But he has this other figure of Vera to kind of torture him, <laughs> him for himself, you know. This was early in the evening. And the conversation, while hectic, was at least pitched low. But as the minutes passed, and more obstacles to her plan popped into my head, the air got blue. Each word coming from our lips cracked like a whip. I reminded her that as Charles Haskell, I didn't even know my mother's name, where I'd gone to school, the name of my best friend, whether I had an Aunt Emma or not, my religion, and if I'd ever owned a dog. I didn't even know what my middle initial stood for. I also pointed out that the real Haskell had a scar on his forearm. His people never saw that scar. He told me he ran away right after putting out the kid's eye. Yeah, but his father knew he was cut. It had to be some kind of a mark. So what? The old man's dead or will be. I hope by tomorrow morning's papers. It doesn't 
go too slow for me. I really appreciate the fact that at that point in the story of Detour, Ulmer boils it down to the absolute essentials. It really becomes a two-person play at that point. The abusive Vera and the changing, um, shifting emotional landscape of Al. And you really, for me, Ulmer has a real difficult transition he needs to enact because however, whatever sympathies we might feel for Al in relationship to what happened with Haskell, in order to get Vera out of his life, he can no longer be passive. Pretty much whatever happened via Haskell was a passive response to a fateful incident that he handled in a way that led towards it being a criminal endeavor. But in order to really rid Vera, he is going to have to ultimately employ the ultimate last resort, which is to you know kill her. And Omer needs to do that in literally two scenes or less. And a lot of films would spend you know, 90 minutes building up a powder keg. Think about like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Like to get someone to that powder keg state usually is something directors do really, really slowly over multiple scenes in a movie. Ulmer does it in two scenes. And by the time he gets to his breaking point, I always find it highly believable. I mean, at that point, I kind of want to snap Vera's neck myself. I love the line in the movie when he talks about... If this were fiction... I would fall in love with her, marry her, and make a respectable woman of her, or else she'd make some supreme class A sacrifice for me and die. Sue and I would fall a little over a grave and make some crack about there's good in all of us. But Vera, unfortunately, was just as rotten in the morning as she'd been the night before. You know, she had some good in her, and I was going to bring it out. But no, she has no good in her at all. That's what makes her the ultimate femme fatale. I mean... I always thought Kathy Moffat in Out of the Past is one of my favorite femme fatales, who literally is one of the you know baddest characters in the entire uh, female canon of noir. And yet there really is only one queen in my book, and it's Anne Savage playing Vera. I love how the phone plays into this part of the movie. I mean, the phone has kind of been with us through a lot of the film. We introduced it in New York when, with Al calling up Sue, and we get a little bit of Sue again with this phone call, but yet he's he's not ready to talk to her. He can't even say hello to her on the, the phone. And then we get Vera using the phone, trying to call the police, you know, threatening Al with it. And then the phone is, is ultimately the murder weapon. And this was that other moment when I saw this film originally where I was like, am I really supposed to be believing this, that in this drunken state, Vera takes the phone, she finally says that she's going to call the cops on Al, takes it, locks the door on him, and somehow as she's making her way to the bed, wraps the cord around her neck, and then Al is grabbing onto that cord on the other side of the door and chokes the life out of Vera. One of the strangest and most satisfying cinematic deaths that I've ever seen. And just, oh my God, like I said, I was just flabbergasted. I really could not believe that I had just seen what I had saw. And Ulmer knows that. The part that is so memorable about that scene, if uh, some of the people listening to this podcast haven't seen the film before, you definitely want to watch that final ending after her strangulation by telephone cord because it the, the shot staging and shot choices made by Ulmer are the 
evidence of a first-rate directorial talent with ambition to burn. She is uh, modeled perfectly in a mirror shot that is just exquisitely designed. When you watch Al walking around the apartment, Vera is almost always in her death state, visible in the background in this real interesting position because she's lying dead on the bed with just this one arm dangling in just a very evocative way. And then he even goes even deeper into the cinematic playbook with this series of pull-in, pull-out focus shots as Al matches his voiceover narration and the room goes in and out of focus around various objects, ending with one of my favorite shots in the film, actually showing the phone box at the baseboard level of the apartment. I mean, it's like it has gotten fetishized to such a degree in Al's mind it actually like literally goes all the way into Bell Labs itself. I mean, this is this is like a murder by telephony of just the most grandiose proportions. The world is full of skeptics. I know. I'm one myself. In the Haskell business, how many of you would believe he fell out of the car? And now, after killing Vera without really meaning to do it, how many of you would believe it wasn't premeditated? In a jury room, Every last man of you would go down shouting that she had me over a barrel and my only out was force. The room was still. So quiet that for a while I wondered if I'd suddenly gone deaf. It was pure fear, of course. And I was hysterical. But without making a sound. Vera was dead. And I was her murderer. Murderer? What an awful word that is. But I'd become one. I'd better not get caught. What evidence there was around the place had to be destroyed. And from the looks of things, there was plenty. Looking around the room at things we'd bought was like looking into the faces of a hundred people who'd seen us together and who remembered me. This was the kind of testimony I couldn't rub out. No. I could burn clothes and hide bottles for the next five years. There'd always be witnesses. The landlady, for one. She could identify me. The car dealer, the waitress in the drive-in, the girl in the dress shop, and that guy in the liquor store. They could all identify me. Cooked. Done for. I had to get out of there. While one side remained beside a dead body, planning carefully how to avoid being accused of killing him, this time I couldn't. This time I was guilty. Knew it. Felt it. I was like a guy suffering from shock. Things were whirling around in my head. I couldn't make myself think right. All I could think of was the guy with the saxophone and what he was playing. It wasn't a love song anymore. It was a dirge. That series of shots that you're talking about is that is the stuff where, yeah, that's a kind of POV shot from Al as he's focusing in on different things in the room. That is just absolutely wonderful. And that was one of those where it's just like, this is a master craftsman. I don't care about how cheap certain things look. I don't care about anything else. This is the stuff where it's like, you have got to be kidding me. This is amazing just to hear this voiceover and to see the way he's, he's taking us around this room and kind of reexamining everything through this new light of Vera's death. It was just terrific. Al travels all the way across the country, and he still never gets to see Sue, which I find to be one of the great ironies of, of this film. 
Well, it should be because it's in the original script that he he actually kind of has a moment in the Martin Goldsmith screenplay where there is closure to the fiance story. But I don't see where Ulmer could even have put it in in any meaningful way because uh, part of that structuring absence of Sue just has to remain a structuring absence even at the end. I mean, once he strangles Vera, the story has a really interesting coda that brings us back to the a land of diners and uh, the present day. But the film veers really powerfully for me in those final five minutes into some of the best noir philosophizing on celluloid that you can possibly find. That ending, the end scene, the end monologue, uh, voiceover, all of that is just, that is classic, classic film noir. And I've heard that they reshot the end or added the cops at the end because of the the uh, Hayes Code at the time, no criminal could get away with murder. And Al clearly does say that he has murdered Vera. And again, we go into this whole irony kind of thing where it's not Al who murdered Vera. It is Haskell who is blamed for the murder of Vera. So Al really is kind of getting off scot-free in a way, other than that he now lives with this feeling that he has murdered Vera, which, you know, he did. But, oh my goodness, him walking along that lonely road at night, and the cops coming up, and it just, it's great because the way that the book ended, and I imagine that the screenplay ended the same way, he does have this line about God or fate or some mysterious force can put the finger on you or on me for no good reason at all. The addition of these cops who just pull up, open up the door and put them in, you really couldn't get better than that. In that ending where the cops just pull up and put them in the in the car with really no protest almost reminded me of like scenes of mentally ill people being picked up and taken away. Where it's just like, all right, buddy, like, come on, you know, they just kind of put their arm around him and put him in the car and drive him off. And I, I sort of saw that he was like really broken in the end. Like he wasn't, he wasn't even like gonna fight. It's like why even, why even bother? Resigned. Yeah, and 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 that that's just such a great point, Rob. Because I, when that car pulls up, I mean, it's absolutely absurd. I mean, how would they even know that this is the guy? I am a big fan of the censorship tacked on endings in noir because this isn't the Hollywood musical. This isn't the conventional romance. Noir always was going to have a problem because the Hayes Code forbid anyone getting away with crimes. And yet at the core of the noir moral code, you had to have characters that fundamentally uh, got away with crime. And so these tacked on endings are just absolutely delirious in their nonconformity to the rest of what you have just watched. I mean, I even I am positive that audiences in 1945 didn't even buy it. And what I love about what Ulmer did is it is so understated. I mean, he doesn't have like handcuffs slapped on him or have a scene in his, you know, a jail door slamming. It's just this weird moment. And I think Rob put his finger on it where you really just have Al literally as a utterly traumatized shell of a human being 
literally just needed to be whisked off somewhere. And probably Bellevue is as good a place as any for what he went through for having to spend uh, a couple days of his life with Vera. It just really had this feeling of being collected. It didn't have the feeling of being arrested or, you know, fighting the law. It was it was like being collected. It was just like, oh, hey, there's a guy on the side of the road. Let's pick him up. All right. Let's <laughs> take him off. You know, you get this, this total, like I said, this total feeling of resignation. It's like, it's over. You know, I didn't go see my girl. She doesn't want me. I killed this guy or maybe I didn't. Uh, then I killed this other woman. There's nothing like, what the hell am I even doing with my life? Al is, is done. Even if these cops are just picking him up to be nice or something, hey, buddy, you know, get in the car. It's going to start raining soon or whatever. You know that he's just like, I killed a guy. I killed this woman <laughs> as soon as he gets in there. No, he, you can definitely tell that he's w- wanting to tell his story. And that's what's so exciting about that final coda in the diner is you really get a sense this whole time that part of what the entire voiceover narration is, is he wants the audience to be part of his absolution from just this really bad period in his life. And I really feel he was at the end of this film, someone who really for purely personal reasons wanted to confess. This was a guy that even if the cops weren't going to pick him up uh, in an alternate film a week from now, he was just going to walk into a police station and turn himself in. He couldn't live with himself anymore. The fickle finger of fate in this film absolutely did a number on this guy. And that's why it is such a brilliant noir and why it's so hard to remake these films nowadays, because we just don't seem to make these films as Ulmer did with such a true belief in just how the world can truly wring every last part of someone's soul from them and just leave them as a shell of a person. And that's the genius you have in a film like Detour. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Noah Eisenberg. He's the author of Edgar G. Ulmer, A Filmmaker at the Margins, after these important messages. Hey, this is Chris from the Weedsman Podcast, Unregimented, and I'm the founder of Christopher Media, and I have a call to action for all of you Christopher Media listeners. Rob St. Mary, you may know him from the Projection Booth Podcast. Well, he's written himself a book called Re-Entry, the Orbit Anthology. This book chronicles 35 years of Detroit's rise to cultural prominence through the pages of Orbit, White Noise, and Fun Magazines. You can help by going to Patronicity.com or OrbitBookDetroit.com and donating whatever you can to help make this book possible. Your tax-deductible support will help create a lasting document to over 35 years of vital Detroit cultural history as told through Orbit, Fun, and White Noise magazines. This deluxe illustrated edition will not only feature reprints of popular articles, but also tell the -the behind-the-scenes stories of how these landmark magazines covered Detroit's music, film, art, food, and creative scene like no one else dared and with a healthy dose of humor. Please give whatever you can to make this landmark publication possible and make sure to check out the Projection Booth podcast and all of the other great shows at ChristopherMedia.net. I thank you for listening and I thank all of you for the support. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. 
Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. I am among, I wear a few hats at the, at, the, uh, at the new school, but within the new school, which is a quirky place to begin with and made up of many, many divisions, I run the little film program. It's only been in existence for about five years. It's called Screen Studies. Uh, there were a number of, 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 of colleagues of mine who felt that, that was a, a more forward-looking designation for, for the study of film and other digital media. So it's Green Studies, and I direct that program at Eugene Lang College, which is the new school for liberal arts. Uh, it's a liberal arts college within the new school in New York City. And I'm also then chair of the Department of Culture and Media. And a person beyond that, too, I'm also a professor of, 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 uh, in this committee on, on liberal studies and interdisciplinary programs, an MA degree um, within the New School for Social Research, which was where most of, where most of the graduate programs are housed. And, and one of those programs is called the Committee on Liberal Studies. Not exactly like the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, but something like that in the, in the sense that it's a, it's a very interdisciplinary program. So I and teach courses there as well. I've been at the New School for now about a decade. Prior to that, I taught for close to a decade at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, where uh, I was toward the end split between German studies and film studies. And Wesleyan has a, has a, has a terrific film studies program that's been rather distinguished for, for several decades now in large measure due to this its very charismatic leader, Janine Basinger, who's, who's uh, I don't know whose work you may or may not know. So that's my story, and then I write uh, a, a fair amount of, of, of freelance work as a you know, book critic for different, different places, and I am the book review editor for Film Quarterly magazine, a magazine that's published uh, by the University of California Press, and is currently edited now by uh, B. Ruby Rich. So you kind of brought your love of the German with the film. Uh, you wrote about the Weimar films before, correct? That was the transition, really. I, I taught a lot of Weimar cinema. Here's where Omer came in, really, <laughs> which was that I would teach Weimar cinema 
I taught it at, at, at Wesley, and I was a TA for my then dissertation advisor at Berkeley in the Weimar Cinema course that he does at, at Berkeley. This is Anton Kays or Tony Kays. And then at, at Wesley, and I taught it, you know, it was sort of one of my bread and butter courses. And and when I say this is where Omar came in, because I would I would end that course always with the black cat, which was my little sort of coda, you know, what, what, what happens to Weimar after Weimar? What happens to Weimar when Weimar crosses the Atlantic? And so Omar's, you know, his entry to the universal horror cycle, the black cat, was always kind of an homage to Weimar cinema. And it's one of those films that, at least on a kind of personal basis for Omar, I think, links him up, too, to these films to which he'd always asserted this kind of deeper attachment. But those links are, you know, in many instances, a, a bit, you know, tenuous at best, if not outright, you know, dubious. You know, when he claims, for instance, I know you may be familiar with this, is the three-part interview with Peter Bogdanovich conducted just a couple of years before Omar passed away in 19... So the interviews were conducted in 70, passed away in, in, in the final day of September 1972. In that interview with Peter Bogdanovich, he tells me, you know, Junior, who this is, Carl my son, Junior Lemley, gave, gave us, uh, or gave me, I think it was, a free, free hand to to direct as, as we had done with Caligari, to direct in the style as we had done with Caligari. So, you know, this assertion of, of being a part of, of Cabin of Dr. Caligari. Caligari was in production. Ulmer would have been 15 years old. So, you know, there, there, there's, he certainly identified with these, with these Weimar films, these legendary films, whether there's the Golem or Caligari or, or Lang's two-part Nibelungen series and, 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 and you know, through Metropolis and, and so forth. Black Cat was a way, I think, for him to kind of claim that 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 cherished cultural legacy of Weimar cinema, even if he himself didn't really have all that much to do with 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 Weimar cinema. I think it was just that that for him was it was part of his intellectual and his filmic heritage. How did you go from kind of using Black Cat as this bookend for a class into actually writing a monogram on Detour? Of the films that people who know anything, you know, there's that perennial question, you know, Edgar G. Who? Um, Vincent Canby, when he wrote a, a, a piece, when Film Forum did a, a retrospective in, in 92, and, you know, he began with that, and there was a piece in the Atlanta Constitution, I think it was, that bore that very title, Edgar G. Who? Well, if they know anything about Edgar G. Who, or Edgar G. Omer, it's usually they know of, of the Black Cat, and then maybe they know about Detour, because Detour is, I think you can claim is, 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 is best known film. And so when I started to make the move from just teaching German or Austrian cinema to teaching more American cinema and, you know, classical Hollywood and then later kind of independent cinema, sci-fi stuff and horror and, and whatnot, a whole variety of, of, of genres, I began one of the courses again, almost like the Weimar Cinema course that I taught with, with, with considerable frequency was, was a course on, on film noir. And, Detour is, if not Omer's best-known film, and I think it probably is, it's the one with which he certainly identified most. While I was writing what began as a scholarly study of Omer's work and, and sort of morphed into a critical biography, but while I was writing it, really the, the, the link, the, the point at which it kind of turns into that biography, I think was, was when I was able to, you know, when I was commissioned to write the, 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 the Detour monograph for for the BFI's film classic series. And that's when, in, in writing for, you know, they have a pretty strict format for those books. One of the things that they, that they really, I think, want authors to emphasize is to sort of mix 
of kind of more mainstream film criticism and even somewhat more biographical writing with something that's a bit more academic and scholarly. And so this gave me a chance, I think, to test out my ideas on Ulmer, you know, zeroing in on, on what is arguably his best-known film, and to see whether or not I could maybe write for a wider audience and to, to you know, to try to take the example, uh, you know, that, that, that wonderful example of the BFI Film Classic series and use that as a means to change, sort of shift gears and change the tenor of the project overall. And that's, that's, that's in fact, that's really what occurred. So that the detour book appeared in 2008. And during that academic year, then I was fortunate enough to get a grant to spend a year in Berlin working in the Paul Kohner archives. And Paul Kohner was known as the magician of Sunset Boulevard was one of these agents who represented lots and lots of European transplants, Ulmer among them. And so I spent a year working at the uh, the Berlin Film Museum. That's where the, the papers, the Paul Kona papers are housed. And that's when the book really turned much, much more into into a biography. So even in the, the little detour uh, monograph for the BFI Film Classics series, I think you, you'll see certain um, facets of, of Ulmer's biography represented there in that in that in that book, but 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 with the, the the year spent sifting through all the papers, all the memoranda, and all these letters, especially these letters between Omer and his his main agent at the Conor office, who was a Viennese-born woman named Ilza Lahn, that really allowed me to to change the book from just being a kind of uh, you know a study of his of his cinematic output, you know, more of an academic or scholarly study of his cinematic output, to a critical biography. When I when I look back now, as I'm as I'm able to do, because I'm finally on the other side, I dreamed of, of ultimately reaching that other side for so many years. I worked on this book for well over a decade, but as I'm now able to do, to look back, I, I really see the the detour monograph as being a, a kind of a critical turning point, in that it, it it gave me the chance to write on film in a slightly different style and with the explicit intent of reaching of reaching a wider audience. Whether or not that was totally successful with that book, I, I can't really say, but I think it did help to uh, to get me to, to rethink what I was going to do with, with with the Omer project. And really, yeah, it's from that point onward that I, that I suddenly thought of the book as not just a, a study of, of Omer's films, but really a, a study of his life. And I knew it was going to be a difficult life to write because of all the different stories that Omer told at different points in his life and trying to sort of sort out a lot of the uh, tall tales that he told without being in any way sort of smug or self-satisfied. I, I really am happy that, that it took that, that, that term because I, I feel that as we were talking about moments ago, it's, it's enabled me to have uh, a chance to, to speak to, to people. I don't think I would have been able to speak to had I just written more of a, an academic, you know, or scholarly uh, a study of, of Omer's work, and had it been much more theoretically inflected, and had it had it been written in a in a way that is is, is certainly uh, uh, you know uh, de rigueur in, in in academic circles, but is often seen as and, and with good reason seen as kind of opaque and and impenetrable for those who reside outside the ivory towers. So I didn't want to do that. I think I'd over the years I'd written enough for. The kind of more popular venues, writing you know, kind of book criticism, and and, and also just do, doing a little bit of film criticism, and and more kind of personal essays, and that sort of thing over the years. That I just realized I, I that was not where this project belonged, and and Omer's following too really wasn't 
strictly an academic following. Sure, his films have have been taught, and you know, I was among those who taught the films uh, in, in certain academic courses. But but I think that the his most ardent following after the the sort of the French around the Cahiers to cinema circle and those you know loose affiliates or, or people who are central to the Cahiers uh, circle, the next group that really championed his work and and I think deserves the lion's share of the credit are the people who, you know, wrote for these kind of more underground newspapers, whether it was, you know, Myron Mizell at the Boston Phoenix or at the Chicago, yeah, the reader, the Village Voice, if you think of people like Hoberman, and Dave Kerr was, he was at the Chicago Reader as well, right? Dave Kerr and, um, I think it was Byron Mizell who also had been at the Reader. I, I always get, the, you know, they, they kind of bounce back and forth, and Mizell published a lot of stuff in the Boston Phoenix. But The Voice, the Boston Phoenix, the Chicago Reader, these are the people who really were the sort of early champions of Ulmer's work. And so to write a, you know, a scholarly tome in a way would have been kind of blasphemy in a way. I mean, it would have, it would have deprived the legitimate circle of, of Ulmer supporters and, 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 and people who even brought Ulmer to, to, to critical attention. It would have, I don't know, it just sort of struck me as anathema in a way. And so I was glad that I, I don't want to make it into some sort of like incredible epiphany, but I'm just glad that having written that, that, that detour book, that I was able to rethink the project and especially rethink the style in which I wanted to write that project. And it's funny, there have been a lot of, of reviews most recently in the August issue of, of Sight and Sound. And, and Nick Pickerton wrote, it's a lovely review. You know, he calls me out, and there are certain moments in the book where even as hard as I may have tried to reach a wider audience without, you know, completely pandering shamelessly, given my background, given my training, there are certain moments, and, and Nick Pinkerton in this in his review in Sight and Sound, the August issue, he kind of calls me out on it, and one, and very, very gently, very nicely, but, you know, there are still certain moments in the, in the biography, and you may have caught some of them, too, where just there's the, whatever it is, the Teutonic syntax or that sort of, you know, whether it's my penchant for sometimes using foreign words or whatever it is. I mean, I try my best not to. I've, I've tried to unlearn all the bad habits that I learned in graduate school, but even so, I think there's still a few buried in there, just as you have all sorts of wonderful continuity flaws and imperfections buried in detour. So maybe it's somewhat befitting then of a, of a subject like Omar, that I would have my own little imperfections and flaws that are buried in, buried in the biography. But among them, just that, that, some, that occasional inability to, to make that, that, last, that last step in, in producing kind of pellucid prose. I really appreciated how much you humanized him, especially through the use of the letters, through the use of his uh, book that he was working on. Which was very autobiographical. Well, it's it's sort of a veil. I mean, in a way, it's a veiled autobiography beyond the boundary. This novel that he wrote, so much of that is autobiographical. But go ahead, thank you. I'm glad that you that you that you found that useful. I interrupt you though. Go ahead. Omer really was one to adorn the truth uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder if it was the people to whom he was writing or if he was actually kind of fibbing to himself when it came to a lot of the times where you would document these letters where, you know, everything looks great. I am going to be, yeah. you know, heading right into the sunset with this project. This is fantastic. And again, I don't know if that was pulling the leg of whoever he was writing to, or if he really felt like that was what was really going to happen? I mean, I think it's, it's a great a great question, and, 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 I, and I think you've picked up on something that's really important for his life and his career, namely that, that when he was writing those kinds of letters that you just, you know, so whether it's from the Hollywood Plaza and he's writing to Shirley and saying, you know, I'm, I'm as good as 
gold and I'm, I'm going to be the big man on the Paramount lot and I'm going to direct a, you know, a remake of, of The Blue Angel starring Veronica Lake and, a, and an adaptation of a George S. Kaufman and Mark Connolly play Bigger on Horseback. Yes, in one sense, he, I think he was trying to convince Shirley because she, he didn't want her. He, 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 he was his lifelong collaborator, even if he, if he in, in numerous instances, wasn't the most loyal husband. She was his lifelong collaborator, his biggest fan, his biggest champion, and you know, and she carried the the, the, the torch until until his daughter Ariane really picked up that that and carried the torch, and, and continues to carry carry that torch. But I think it was a means of legitimizing his his his, his choices and his career in the eyes of Shirley, and 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 then by extension the eyes of Ariane. And as you I think astutely picked up, I mean, it was also as a means of somehow talking through these difficult moments in his life and his career to, to, to himself. So he'd write this and, you know, he, he, he couldn't give up on himself. I mean, if he gave up on himself, I mean, obviously his career would be all over. And, 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 and he wanted to think of it in such careerist terms. It wasn't even just that, you know, he, he, he would have just gone belly up. I mean, he was barely eking out a living at numerous points in his career. And to completely lose faith, who knows what he would have ended up doing? It's, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. But, but so, so in the face of it, adversity, in the face, you know, working for all these bottom of the barrel uh, studios and, 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 and with a lot of, you know, uh, bit players from the B-movie circuit and, and, and shady producers and all this, he had to somehow, even if some, in some cases, as you rightly point out, it was, you know, heavily whatever embroidered or embellished, adorned uh, his stories. He had to believe in, in, in himself, and I think that he did so. Obviously, you know, he kind of he overextended <laughs> that, but I, I, I think that it, it, it enabled him to retain a sense of integ- artistic integrity when working in a world that had really very little artistic integrity. So, in other words, when directing some of the trashiest of, of trashy B pictures that he made, whether you know it's Girls in Chains, for example. I mean, I have a soft spot for my son, the hero, but it's really not a great movie. You know, both these movies were among the 11 feature-length films that he directed for PRC between 1942 and 46. And it's not a particularly charitable way of referring to these films as dross or trash, but I think, you know, if we can step back and look at them in relation to other movies that were being made at that time, you could say, in fact, these are really not great, great movies. And for him to to make these movies and, and to continue at the rate that he did, as I mentioned, you know, PRC churning out 11 feature-length films as director and working on all sorts of scripts and, and, and co-producing and doing all sorts of other things there. You know, in many ways, uh, towards the end of his four-year stint there, he kind of served as a as a kind of ersatz uh, head of production. Um, but what kept him going is, I think, is, is that faith that he actually would, in fact, uh, whether whether he's going to, you know, make it big and become some sort of, you know, that that, that elusive dream of becoming a big man on a lot at, at one of the at one of the majors, or whether it was just that, you know, he was going to create some sort of, you know, strive for some sort of artistic truth, uh, you know, some sort of ineffable. I'm not sure what, but 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 I think that there is that. That's part of the, you know, if I, if I think of Omer as fabulous and the, the mendacious aspect of, of, of Omer's personal life as well as his professional life, I think that a kind of corollary to that or some, some analogy to that is that, 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 that over-striving, overreaching, he did that, that overreaching, even on some of the, you know, his lowliest productions, he would, you know, he would strive to include some, some sort of artistic flourish and that's, I think, that what, you know, for those people who spent enough time with his 
you know, with with his films. That's one of the things that I think leaves people scratching their head, like, wow, wow, what, 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 you know, this is crazy, you know. So, so a film like uh, a, a Girls in Chain, Girls in Chains, you know, to have that that crazy sequence, you know, using rear projection that takes place at the um, Niagara Falls and the sort of dumping of this body. These sorts of, of, of just extraordinary little sequences. And, and, you know, I can very easily get called to task on this, and some people have, I think, if not done, done so with, with, with malice, have at least challenged me on this, you know, for, for looking at each of these little pictures for just some something, some, some flash, whether it's sort of, you know, a la Andrew Sarah, some sort of signature style. And I'm not really sure that you can find that in Ulmer's work throughout his, uh, you know, 35-year career trajectory, or whether it's just what I was saying, these sort of these mind, you know, or head-scratching moments where you look at some of these lowliest productions with which he was associated and see this, kind of, not necessarily a flash of genius, but something that you just wouldn't expect from an otherwise sort of a, a throwaway picture, one of these sort of fly-by-night melodramas that he made, say, for, for, for PRC. Club of Anna is another, another example of that. Club of Anna, there's this incredible sequence in the parking lot, this, this murder scene. It's just, it's actually, I mean, I, I, I don't want to use the term brilliant too loosely. I don't think that it's necessarily brilliant. But it is so stirring and so somehow compelling in a film that otherwise is really just kind of done using blood, sweat, tears, scotch tape, and, you know, <laughs> very little uh, uh, film stock and, you know, two-to-one shooting ratio, whatever it is that he had on that on that production. So, in other words, this really, really impoverished production. And there you have this amazing, amazing sequence in the parking lot, the, 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 the shootout. Um, so that's, those are those, those, those moments when you, again, for anyone who spends a lot of time with his work and there are those, I mean, I'm not much of a, of a, of a, of a, of a sci-fi buff or a sci-fi head, but there are people who, who would argue the same and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with them about, you know, the, the two pictures that he shot back to back on that abandoned hangar in, in, in Fort Worth, Texas, beyond the time barrier and amazing transparent man, especially beyond the time barrier, just the incredible visual you know, sophistication of a $10,000 production that was done in six days. And again, I don't quote me, I mean, it couldn't have been a hell of a lot more than that. It was definitely done in six days because he made two pictures in two weeks. Six days happened to be that, that you know, that was what Ulmer always or frequently gave for his, for his films. And there were, there were several that took considerably longer than six days in the case of Beyond the Time Barrier and Made Transparent Man, I think, I think. You can take Omar at his word, but in a film like Beyond the Time Barrier, there, there too, I mean, just the, the incredible visual style in a film that is so cheap, it's really quite amazing. So we're almost on the eve of the 70th anniversary of Detour. Why are we still talking about this cheapy little film noir from 70 years ago? One of the great reasons is, is I'll have to, 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 to defer to... Uh, the good old Martin Scorsese on this and his, his, his the, the, the documentary that he did, the journey, the journey through American cinema, where he thinks of this film as being really essentially kind of a, I'm just paraphrasing, but something akin to a kind of a distillation of, of noir. This is noir at its reeking, rotten essence. And, and I think there really is something to that. It is so utterly minimalist, so elemental. There is something so... Still, when you watch it, I mean, again, the film is riddled with continuity flaws and imperfections and so forth, but there is something so visceral, so so gripping about just sort of these figures who are clawing their way 
through the film. And, and, you know, and for me, of course, as a biographer, it, it's even Homer claw his way through this, through this picture as well. Um, it is, it is also to, to some degree a kind of little, little engine that could story. I mean, this is really, this is a film that, that was one of the first, the very first, I should say, B picture to gain entry to the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. And actually, Dave, Dave Kerr was one of the people who was pushing for that in 1990, I believe it was. It's an amazing feat that this little uh, bastard child of, of Hollywood managed to, to outrun its fate and to, 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 to you know, gain entry to the pantheon of, of, of from noir. And, and people who study noir, and again, I'm, I'm speaking as to some degree as somebody who operates from within the academy, but also even outside the academy, those people who are interested in noir and who attend whatever, you know, who attend the, 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 the Eddie Muller's annual uh, gatherings or who, who go to you know, noir con in Philadelphia, whatever it is that you do, Detour still remains one of the central films for 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 anyone who is interested in, in that period and i think that that again it is the rawness it is this sort of distillation of 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 that nasty spirit uh of 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 noir it certainly has something to do i mean i i am enormously enormously uh, uh taken with the performance by ann savage and think that she was one of the great underrated uh actors who also, like Tom Neal, her counterpart, was sort of toiling in uh, in the lower depths of 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 the B movie circuit, and and you know she never really got her break. But her performance in Detour is as as nasty as it as it should have been, and is really just I think striking, gripping, um, and 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 I just never see. I've seen that movie so many times. And one of the great pleasures that I take in watching it today is watching it with my students and seeing their response, especially to Anne Savage, you know, when she sort of drops in halfway into the picture. And, and, and as I write in a little BFI book, kind of holds things in, in headlock until her unceremonious departure towards the end of the film. Um, and, and she is, I think, another, you know, another great reason in terms of why, it is, you know, in terms of the endurance, in terms of the lasting power of that film Anne Savage's performance—it was really so far ahead of her of, 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 of her time. I mean, she was just such a badass. And I don't know whether you're familiar with Guy Madden's *My Winnipeg*, which was, you know, he kind of he, he managed to coax Anne Savage out of retirement to play his mother in this docu-fantasia from 2007, just a year before she passed away. But if you haven't had a chance to see it, it's certainly worth seeing because she she somehow manages, or maybe it's you know again, through Guy Madden's brilliant direction, but manages to kind of rekindle that fiery spirit of Vera in my Winnipeg. And and so I think that, you know, Anne Savage is definitely an important factor in understanding why it is that that film, you know, she is, she is one of the baddest of badass femme fatales to, to, you know, emanate from the, from the silver screen during the heyday of, of, of film noir. You know, every every bit as lethal and as acid-tongued as Barbara Stanwyck in, in Double Indemnity. Vera is so much rawer than Barbara Stanwyck. And I adore Barbara Stanwyck. I think that she's extraordinary as Phyllis Dietrichson in, in Double Indemnity. But uh, Anne Savage's Vera is just, it is really, 
you know, she she makes that claim to Al Roberts when they're when they're sort of locked in in that in that Buick, that, that you know she'll have him locked up in 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 in, a, in an Arizona prison so fast that'll that'll give him the bends, I think, as she puts it in that line of dialogue. And I find that just watching her perform in certain moments kind of gives me the bends. I mean, she just barks at at at, at Tom Neal. You know, shut up and uh, you sap and all these lines that she just you know spits out with extraordinary velocity. Um, and you know, in interviewing her, she she says, you know, she she that Elmer tried to kind of get her to to, to 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 spit out her lines as if they came out of a shotgun, and, and you know, she went hoarse uh, in the in the process. And I and I think that that's definitely part of the the the, the extraordinary force, and 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 again the the uh, part of the in, in, you know the lasting power the endurance of that of that film is her amazing performance some of my favorite films noir have been based on books i think almost all of my favorite ones have come from literature in some form or fashion and detour is is the same what can you kind of tell me about martin m goldsmith and the book that it was based on and then he wrote the screenplay for this as well yeah, right yeah exactly and then they had to, you know, whittle it down. But yeah, he—he he, he, uh, that was an unusual. So, so Martin M. Goldsmith, he, prior to publishing in 1939, publishing his his slim pulp novel Detour, he'd only uh, his only other writing credits were a another pulp, which was his first, called Double Jeopardy. And then he'd also written a smattering of of, of, of short stories um, that he'd published in, in, in script. And, and Cosmopolitan and other such magazines. Goldsmith had, I mean, this is kind of the, 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 the wonderful backstory to this, is that on the eve of the Great Depression, he apparently thumbed his way cross-country from New York. And then while he was writing Detour, apparently he, he financed the writing of that pulp novel by, by loading, <laughs> loading a bunch of people in the back of his Buick station wagon and driving them cross-country at 25 bucks ahead from New York to Los Angeles. It's funny, when that book was published, the, the, the New York Times hailed it, and I, I love this line. It's one of my favorites. I'll never forget it. I can you know, quote this any, any time. They called it a red-hot, fast-stepping little number. And it is, I don't know whether you spent any time with the, the, the little source novel, but it is, you know, in a hundred and, whatever it is, 145 page, depending upon which edition you read, it really packs a punch. And in that novel, where he rotates Martin Goldsmith, he rotates chapter by chapter from Al's story to Sue's story. And when he adapted it for the screen, we also had much more of Sue's story. And then when, when Ulmer, together with Martin Mooney, the associate producer on the picture, when they realized that, you know, there's no way they could adopt this, uh, this, this I think it was 250-page screenplay or something that he'd written when, when he'd been trying to do it in, in his own uh, uh, adaptation of the, of the novel, they lopped off Sue's story, more or less. I mean, I think it's very fitting when you, when you see Al calling and you never get to hear her response in a way that, that kind of tells it all because Claudia Drake, who plays Sue in the picture, you know, she has very, very little screen time and has very, very few lines of dialogue. Um, and basically her many, many other lines and the complexity of her character kind of ended up on the proverbial, you know, editing room floor. It was a strange choice to have Goldsmith adapt the novel himself. And I don't know whether that was just because it was done for PRC. 
Um, there are other instances where you have the novelist adapting his or her own own work for the screen, but it, it's really it was really quite rare then, and it's I think equally rare today. But but Goldsmith, you know, he he then he was kind of a, a an old lefty, and he end, he ended up uh, in Mexico, and I think that he really felt that he never got the credit that he deserved for the novel or the credit that he deserved for inspiring the, you know, the film that, that, that Ulmer ultimately directed. As, as recent as I think it was the 1990s, and I quote from this in the, in, the, in the BFI book, you know, there was a letter to the editor, I think it was the Los Angeles Times, you know, and I think it was from Goldsmith's widow who was claiming that you know, he'd never really been accorded the, 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 the fame that he deserved. So, you know, Goldsmith, almost like an Ulmer figure, I think, is, is somebody who was, who, was, who was overlooked, but it was enormously talented. And that, that little novel, it's not from, you know, from 1939, is a very, very poignant and compelling story. And, and I think that Elmer was, 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 was drawn to it, you know, in, in considerable measure due to, 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 to uh, Goldsmith's talent and, and, and to what he was able to get across on the page. You know, Elmer identified greatly with, with this figure. Al. He, he was Alexander Roth. In the in the novel, he was a Jewish. He was a violin player, and then and then you know he becomes Al 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 Roberts, the, the pianist. But he was you know kind of again a frustrated musician. And you know the novel kind of it 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 it, it, it luxuriates really in in all sorts of sort of ambient you know Jewish touches and there's Yiddishisms and all that. And that of course wouldn't have been appropriate for the story. But I think that Omer, who was a very very uh, assimilated you know, identified himself as this Viennese Jew, even though he was born in the provinces, um, but cultivated and so forth. I think he still felt some attachment. There was some, if you like, I don't know, tribal attachment, but I think that he also, so it was that combination perhaps of some sort of ethnic, if you like, or tribal identification, but also with this sort of frustrated artist, that down and out artist. And, and you know, even at the end of his career, so as late as 1968, Ulmer tries to, remake Detour. He filed a screenplay with the, the Screenwriters Guild uh, in 1968 under the title, well, alternates the title, either The, the Loner or The Loser, depending. It's, 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 the, the, the copy I have bears the title The, the Loner, but then it's, it's, it's penciled out and says The, the Loser. Either, either way, I think, is very, very fitting, you know, and, and very much fitting, too, when you think of Ulmer and, you know, almost a very you might say, a sort of desperate move late in his career when he hasn't struck it big, 1968. This is just four years before, uh, you know, he passes away from, from, from a violent stroke, September 30th, 1972. And he is trying to kind of somehow, you know, Detour was the film with which he identified most deeply, and he tries to, to redo it. You know, he sets it in the hippie culture of San Francisco, and it has a lot more sex in it, the, 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 the screenplay. But Omer, he wasn't ready to, to let go of that. And, you know, there's another example of this, too, which was the first picture that he ever directed, which is the one that he actually co-directed with Robert Siodmak still, you know, in, in Europe. He, he went back to Berlin, and they make this wonderful, this really amazing, silent uh, picture from the Weimar era, a film that I teach all the time, which is called uh, Menschen am Sonntag, People on Sunday. And late in his life, too, like the example I just gave you with Detour, he was in conversation with Luc Moulet and Bertrand Tavernier. They were among the first to interview Ulmer uh, for Cahiers de Cinema in the 1950s. 
uh, and then again in the 60s. And, and, and Ulmer wanted to remake People on Sunday, which was a, a film that uses you know, all amateurs, all non-actors. It has a very sort of naturalistic uh, approach to filmmaking, no sets, all shot on location, natural lighting, you know, the kind of, as you can imagine, them that would inspire then Italian neorealists, or as Ulmer liked to call it, his Rossellini style, and even, you know, later that, you know, the Danish filmmakers around Dogma 95. But Ulmer wanted late in life to, to you know, approach his, he approaches uh, Luc Mouret and, and Bertrand uh, Tavernier and, 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 you know, wants to remake People on Sunday, with, with French actors. And so I think there's, there's something very tragic about a career where, when you think about it, when, when you know, Omar reaches the tail end of his career, and the only thing that he can think of doing at that point is, is remaking some of the films that really, that he continued to hold in high esteem and with which he continued to identify. You have that certainly in the case of Detour, and I, and I think The People on Sunday is another example of that, a film that, that, that he continued to recognize as among his best and, and, and as I said, to, to really hold in high esteem until, until his passing in 1972. So why do you think that Detour was kind of, in? I know there's not a better word for this, or maybe there is, dejuified going from yeah. book to film? And do you think that it was really done completely, or do you think that there are still touches in there that people can see if they're actually looking for them? It's tricky. I've read this film... And, and, and you know, do so in the in the in the BFI book. There's this this subsection called Allegories of Exile, and and I, and I do look at Al Roberts as this as this sort of uh, you know displaced, uprooted figure, like a sort of refugee figure, a la a la Ulmer and all these other refugees from from Germany and Austro-Hungary, uh, largely of Jewish extraction, even if they themselves really didn't necessarily identify as, as, as Jews. I, I think that you can see these sort of subterraneous or latent gestures or, or hints in the, in, in the film. But as to your question about why it was, did you provide why it was stripped of those Jewish references that you have in Goldsmith's novel? I think that especially in, you know, this is, this is it, it premieres, uh, Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving, 1945, America's still sort of reeling, I think, from the Second World War. Um, I, I don't think America was really ready for, for, for these sort of, uh, the kind of ethnic characters that you get much, much later, you know, whatever it's, whether these nebishes and Woody Allen movies or, or, um, I'm trying to think, when do we have gentlemen's agreement? You know that, that that was really quite revolutionary. I think it's I think it's a good few years later. I think it's maybe forty eight, if I'm not mistaken. But but you know I, I just I don't and especially at a, a, a PRC where arguably they could have gotten away with much more. And I think that explains some of of of, of Anne Savage's revolutionary groundbreaking uh, work as 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 Vera. But even 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 at PRC, I, I don't I don't think that they were especially eager to tackle that. That would have been more of sort of a social issue picture. You know, I mentioned gentlemen's agreement, but, but I, I just had done some, 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 some work on William Wyler and, and, you know, the best years of our lives. And that yeah, was, was, you know, there's a great, a great book that just came out by Mark Harris called Five Came Back. And when I was working on, on, on a piece, a review essay on that, on that, on that book, 
I went back and read a bunch of of of, of, of material on William Wyler because I was especially interested in how it is that he came to, to direct Gentlemen's Agreement, and excuse me, <laughs> Gentlemen's Agreement, uh, Best Years of Our Lives, and you know, depicting these 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 returning vets uh, so soon after the war, that was you know. That was really radical, and they came up against all sorts of resistance, Weiler and, and company, in making that movie. And I think, and, and, and you know, there's nothing, there's no reference to, 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 to any of the atrocities that occurred during the war. There's certainly not no reference to any, you know, anything Jewish or any one Jewish in that film. But but I think to 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 to, to include the, the the numerous references, the sort of ambient Jewishness that you have in in uh, in Goldsmith's novel would really have been un- unthinkable. And Gentleman's Agreement, yeah, which I mentioned before, you know, which uh, Elliot Kazan directed. That was two, two, two years later. That's that's forty-seven, and and that was really radical to you know to have someone uh, like Gregory Peck who can oppose as a sort of you know as, as as a stealth Jew. That was really really radical. It's two years later, and I don't know whether America was any more prepared to deal with it then than they would have been in forty-five. But it was just, I mean, of all the things that could have been cut from the novel, I think that was a very easy one to go, <laughs> along with Sue's story, which is kind of sad, because the story of Sue in the novel is actually kind of kind of amazing. It's, you know, it, it's, it's really one of, one of these great, great stories of, of naivete and the belief that you can make your, you know, make your way to Hollywood and become, become a star overnight and, and, and you know, one of many shattered dreams. And it's told with 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 uh, a kind of uh, unvarnished candor that that you really don't find in many novels. I mean, I think of of Bud Schulberg's What Makes Sammy Run, and you know, they, you have that really wonderfully delicious sort of uh, uh, critique of of Hollywood. And 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 and, and sure, that's 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 a terrific example. But 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 uh, Goldsmith's little you know pulp. Does you know kind of packs a punch like Schulberg's novel or Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust, and it and it has it you know it's just one of the many plot lines of that whatever it is 150 page taut little red hot <laughs> red hot fast stepping little number um, that he published in 1939. One thing that I really appreciated in your book was kind of tracing the importance of music in Ulmer's work. I mean that's the thing that. I was struck with immediately the first time that I saw Black Cat, and that's one of the really crucial points of Detour is the way that music kind of triggers the flashbacks and just that he is this piano player, mm-hmm. the formerly violinist. How do you kind of trace the way that music kind of evolved or tied together his his body of work? That's definitely one of the if, – if, if we think of these kind of recurrent aspects of of Ulmer's work, one of those recurrent aspects, one of those things that I think were really like a look for a defining attribute of his work, would be that, that the, 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 the heavy reliance on music, in particular classical music and classical scores. I mean, detour, you have that, that wonderful scene where, where Tom Neal couldn't play the piano, so he shot from his sort of hands up, and you, you do see his hands, but those are actually Erdodi's hands, uh, Leo Erdodi, who, who, who composed the film, who composed the music for the film. That move when he's playing in the nightclub and he kind of he makes his way playing that frenetic kind of uh, improv bit where he moves from Brahms to Boogie Woogie, that's a, a really 
wonderful moment in Ulmer's career because he, 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 I think, was somebody who clearly valued European classical, you know, sort of high art and classical music, but also was very drawn to American culture and specifically to jazz, you know, unlike some of his German, German or Austrian compatriots, uh, you know, uh, uh, famously Theodore Adorno, you know, really thought that the jazz was soulless and scorned and dismissed it. And, um, and 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 you know, Omer was was actually kind of smitten with 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 with, with jazz. And in fact, um, as, as I mentioned in the, in both the the little BFI book as well as in the the much more uh, extensive discussion in, in the biography, he initially had, had Duke Ellington's sophisticated lady on the, on the uh, production budget for the film, and they were going to use sophisticated lady. And, and, and the next to that was, was the sum of $2,000 that it would have cost them to use sophisticated lady. So when they no longer had the money for that, that's when you get the Tim Pan Alley number, you know, I can't believe you're in love with me. I think that again, that, that that's a, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, telling moment because Omer, who was throughout his career so invested in music and, and really, I mean, it's the first love. His first love was music. He wanted to be, he wanted to study music. He wanted to be a conductor. In the absence of that, often used a baton when he was on the set and would sort of conduct various scenes with that baton, a baton that at least his family lore goes was, was, was said to have once been, been, been handed down from, from Franz Liszt, the Hungarian composer. So he was a distant relative of, 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 uh, of Leo Erdodi's. But in any case, the use of that Tin Pan Alley number in, in detours is, 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 a, is an important feature because the, the, the film is a, a, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is a, a movie that, that was so done on the cheap and, and had they used sophisticated lady would not at all have, have, it would have been completely inconsonant, I think, with, with the otherwise impoverished uh, production values, if you can even dignify them, you know, dignify the film with such, with, with such a term, I mean, just the, 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 the extreme minimalism, um, the, the extraordinary number of, of continuity flaws and imperfection, and then had you had the sort of resonant sounds of, 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 of Duke Ellington's sophisticated lady, just I don't think it would have fit, fit at all at the end, but, but the fact of the matter is they wanted to lop $2,000 off the production budget, and they did so by, by including uh, the Tim Pan Alley, uh, I, I can't believe you're in, in love with me. But throughout his career, he was very invested in music, and it goes—I mean, at least in, the, in his American career—it goes goes from from the Black Cat forward. And the Black Cat, which today is is certainly known for you know the first of whatever it is—I think it's some seven or, or more films in which you have Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff played opposite of one another. It, it's also known for its 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 extraordinary classical score, something that hadn't been done. And that in many ways, you know, anticipates, you know, Kubrick's 2001 or anticipates other, other lavish classical scores that come, you know, decades later. And, uh, and so Omer, Omer was somebody who, who was enamored of, of, of music and Carnegie Hall, his great tribute that he wanted to just be sort of the tribute to that wonderful cultural shrine of, of New York City and of the world. You know, he had to include that, that kind of corny, corny uh, uh, fictional storyline because that's what the producers demanded. But, but for him, it's really a showcase of these amazing virtuoso musicians 
and conductors playing in 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 you know in the resplendent setting of 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 Carnegie Hall and Ulmer had a real, I think, artistic stake in that picture, and also, again, just in terms of his own identification as somebody who, who really prized the uh, the greats of 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 uh, modern European classical music. This was a film that that I think gave him the chance to to work with these these many of these people actually were were, were friends of his as well. Um, Fitz Reiner, for example. Uh, Omer's daughter, Ariane, her, her middle name is Carlotta, and it's named after Fritz Reiner's wife. And and, and they were his, uh, they were her rather, uh, uh, godparents. So, I mean, he was very close with these with these European musicians, these refugees who were living in New York and then later in L.A. and so forth. And so, I think that was part of his world. And that identification again with with high art and with music, I think, comes through in a lot of these films. Even you know. Jive Junction, a movie he makes for PRC, is all about that kind of pitting against the pitting against the the, the high and high art and, and the European culture, European music against uh, against jazz, and, and and trying to find some sort of a balance, the same sort of uh, uh, drama that that ensues in in, in Carnegie Hall as well, uh, and the fictional storyline that is of Carnegie Hall, uh, of little Tony who you know wants to play big band and his mom. We'll, we'll have none of that and wants him to, you know, to be this, 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 this classical composer who will, of course, play Carnegie Hall. And he needs to sort of somehow navigate those two worlds uh, in, in that film, in Carnegie Hall. So Omer was, 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 was definitely someone who was invested in music throughout his career and sought to include it as best as he could wherever possible. And so you see it, I think, in... In in, in in so many of his films, and in fact, I mean, there's certain there's certain uh, uh, compositions that crop up. Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, for example, that crop up in in different films at in critical moments. Whether it's in you know in from the Black Cat when when uh, when they d- d- descend, Belagosi uh, and Boris Karloff descend into the gun turret, and you hear it playing there. Whether it's in uh, you hear a few bars of the Unfinished Symphony as well in. Uh, in uh, Jive Junction, when 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 the Dickie Moore learns there's the, the matinee idol who plays the lead in Jive Junction, when he learns that that his father's been killed in the Second World War, you suddenly hear unfinished symphony that the, the Schubert's unfinished symphony, and there's certain pieces like that that that, that you know that Omer would would draw upon. I think again as a means of asserting his sort of his cultural heritage, but also I think as a means of of, of using. These resonant and and uh, evocative uh, uh, compositions as a means of bringing European culture, European uh, music, to the culture industry, to 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 motion pictures. Something that you know he was not alone in this, but something that he felt very passionate about, and 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 and, and you know felt that he had a stake in in, in doing. Um, obviously, there are other directors who've, who've, who've done this as well, but I think that he—that was one of his his goals, and one of the things that I think that he uh, pursued throughout much of his career was somehow balancing his European background, so highbrow European background, or at least that's the way that he often characterized it, with the more lowbrow in terms of you know whether it was jazz, whether it was sort of popular culture, and whether, of course, it was making. 
think that maybe that kind of tension between the highbrow and lowbrow is maybe why we continue to go back to detour after all these years? I think so. I mean, I do think that that's something that, that, that distinguishes the film. Yeah, among the other key attributes that I attempted to kind of point to early, but yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think that's one of the reasons we go back to detour. I think it's one of the reasons we go back to Ulmer. Ulmer was not alone, and there were a number of other, you know, kind of European refugees who were working in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond who, who, who I think, brought something to the, the, the Hollywood dream factories. But Ulmer did this in a way, and I think this has to do with the fact, again, that he was often working outside of the studio system. He did this in a way where he perhaps had uh, a bit more freedom to include the, the, the music and to include these kind of European touches where, you know, that would be regarded as, 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 as was the case of, of, you know, Uncle Carl Lemley when he came back from, from his vacation and, and, and heard the music that Omar was, was including in the Black Cat. You know, this, this is the sort of stuff that was regarded as box office poison. And um, other, other, other filmmakers who were working at, at the, you know, at the majors, I think may have had a little bit more trouble uh, incorporating some of those touches, some of those key aspects. And I mean, I, and I think if you, if you, if you, even her sister's secret, which is a, a lovely melodrama, you know, kind of a, a, a Douglas Sirk style weepy, um, that's just been restored by UCLA and that hopefully will be released in high quality DVD sometime in the next year or two. And but in her sister's secret too, you have. All of this, again, the kind of that mix that we're talking about moments ago, this mix of sort of high culture, low culture, and this, this, this cast that's, that's made up of a, of a number of, of, of European uh, actors, um, whether it's Felix Bizarre uh, uh, or, or, or um, oh, I'm blanking on the other, the other Viennese actor who plays Herr Leuchtag in Casablanca, but this, this is a large European cast and and Elmo worked frequently with these these you know refugee actors who were there in Hollywood who were kind of facing a similar existential predicament as he was, namely that you know they were desperate for work, and he was able to capitalize on that because you know he was desperate to get decent and talented actors on, on onto his onto his films, and so he was able to get some some really wonderfully talented you know former stage actors, and even experienced you know film actors, people who acted a number of films in Europe and then already in. On these shores, there's Sister Secret is, is 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 another film. You know, we keep coming back to, to Detour, and it's very easy to understand why. But her Sister Secret, I think, has something like Detour, not so much in terms of style, but in terms of that mix, that blend of of the the European sort of uh, high art aspirations and more of the kind of low that that, that you know, uh, not necessarily slumming. If you, <laughs> I hate to use that term. But, you know, there is a certain bottom feeder aspect to certainly to, to, to detour to, you know, the, the, the figures who, who populate that, 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 that world. But even the studio was made. I mean, PRC was a, was a bottom feeder studio. They would, they, would, they would, you know, sift, sort of hunt around and, 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 and look for, for a film that does well. You know, when, when Billy Wilder came out with Double Indemnity and it did so well, the box office, they, they came out with Single Indemnity. <laughs> And and there are many many other stories like that where they were just you know they were hot take for whatever they could get their hands on and and, and, and capitalize on various trends you know kind of like what people still do to this day uh, in in the industry. That's why I think we have so many so many damn sequels. Oh 
Wilmer, despite kind of being this outsider, he still managed to work very steadily, it seems, for almost 30 years uh, inside Hollywood, outside, in Europe, all over the place. What was it that finally kind of put an end to his career? Well, it was really his health. I think, Omer, and in fact, this, this, this is a great moment in the Bogdanovich interview that doesn't get, it's not transcribed. It didn't get, I mean, it was transcribed, it didn't make it into the printed text. But there's a, a, uh, a moment at the end of that, of that interview where uh, he says to him, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I can pull up, I can pull up the biography, that galley proof here somewhere, but published interview with Bogdanovich ends with Omer's claim that he was looking for absolution for all the things I had to do for money's sake. In the actual recording and the printed typescript, however, Omer counters Bogdanovich's follow-up remark, uh, follow-up remark, which he says, you made some good pictures, with one last burst of optimism. I'm going to make some good pictures, he retorts. I want kids around me, really. Um, and then Ariane says that, you know, up until the end, he, he always thought, even, even in the latter stages of his illness, he thought he was going to come back. He said, they'll put me in a wheelchair and I'll work. I'll make good things. I'll work with young people. They'll help me. And then she goes, I said, he was still dreaming. Not until the last three, four months of his life did he ever even contemplate that this was the end of the line. You know, I, I, I think that it was, had it not been for his health, he would have continued to, 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 to fight on. But he had a number of early strokes. He had a stroke when they were, stroke when he was, when he, when they were working on the cavern. And they were still in Yugoslavia and then crossed over to the Italian side, to Trieste, to finish the film. He'd, he'd really suffered what, what appears to have been either a, a stroke or some, some form of a heart, heart attack. And he had a number of, of that was that's 1964. Into the, the second half of the 60s, he had a number of, of strokes. When Bogdanovich interviews him in 1970, he'd already suffered from, from pretty serious strokes. So had it really not been for his health, I think he would have continued to try to work. And it's, I think it's really, really clear when you, this is the passage that I, that I read to you, that he thought that, you know, somehow he was going to manage where they had to be pushed around a wheelchair by by young film students or or, or who knows what, but he, he just, you know, he, he wasn't willing to quit. And I think that that, too, explains some of those, uh, you know, adorned or, or embroidered memories that he relays to Peter Bogdanovich and that he really wanted to prop up what, what at that point in time had to have been regarded as sort of a sagging career. And here was his last chance, you know, Bogdanovich at that point in time was interviewing all sorts of great directors, whether it was Hitchcock or Hawks or, or Ulmer for that matter, Fuller, I can't remember all the other, I mean, he interviewed so many, so many uh, uh, directors. And here was Ulmer's chance to tell a, tell, a, tell a good story and hope that that would somehow earn him a place for posterity. And so the interview, in a way, is sort of his last will and testament. <laughs> and what I attempt to do in the biography is to kind of complicate that to some degree and to try to tell, you know, not to, not to uh, disregard that, but to uh, add, add, add a few shades of gray and to add greater complexity um, to the life and career of Edgar G. Elmer. Your eyes, your eyes, your eyes, but ooh la ba 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 
chosen one I can't believe that You're in love with me Your eyes, your eyes, your eyes Your eyes are blue, your kisses I never knew Thanks to Noah Eisenberg for coming on to talk about the film and you can get links over where you can find out more about him and his project over at our website, projection-booth.com. Now, gentlemen, we're talking about Edgar Ulmer in Detour, but uh, as we keep on this road, uh, I think we have another Detour to talk about, and that would be the 1992 remake. So, Rich, did you get a chance to see that? Yes, I did, and I never thought I was going to dislike a film as much as Gus Van Sant's Psycho, but Wade Williams' Detour, I hate more. It's an awful remake, although... In researching it for this podcast, there are a few things for the the rationale behind making it that I can have some respect for. But as a uh, piece of cinematic um, work, boy, it was a tough slog. I totally agree with you. It is what uh, I guess someone had called the Gus Van Zandt psycho movie you know, <laughs> and um, I would say that I, I know what he's trying to do in here. Supposedly, I went and looked it up and supposedly he was taking the original script and trying to make the film based on the original script and and give you more of, you know, the Sioux story and some other stuff that was cut out and try to, you know, like you were talking about some of the plot holes and, and gaps that, that is in the uh, the 45 film. And to me, there's several problems with it. And one of which is, uh, first off, it's in color, which does a lot to make it look cheap. And the second is, it's really hard to get people in the modern era to sound convincing when speaking in that sort of 1940s kind of dialogue. And I don't know why this is. Like, I mean, we've seen people uh, tackle Shakespeare and be able to do it well, you know, and that's even a more archaic, you know, language. But for some reason, having someone kind of talk in that same manner, and if you put the the two early diner scenes up against each other, the the lines up against each other, it, it just sounds corny and it sounds cheesy and it doesn't sound convincing when you hear someone almost 50 years later try to do the same thing. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. You can change the scenery, but sooner or later you'll get a whiff of perfume where somebody will say a certain phrase or maybe hum something. Then you're licked again. I can't believe that you're in love with me. I used to love that song once. So did the customers back in the old break at dawn club in New York. That tune. That tune. Why was there always that rotten tune? Following me around. Beating my head. Never letting up. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know. No matter how hard you try. Careless. I used to love that tune once. So did the customers back at the old Break of Dawn Club in New York. I think that's a great point. It's one of the reasons why period noirs in our contemporary landscape are really hard to pull off. Uh, So, for example, I'm a fan of Ryan Johnson's Brick, which uses a lot of Dashiell Hammett's stylized language from the 1930s. And it works in that film for me because he draws an equivalency between the type of diction used by 1930s hard-boiled characters and the secret lingo of high school students. I think when we try to do it straight up as a direct parroting 
of an authentic language from a previous age, we lose some of the genuine uh, gravitas and meaning of the words. And I think Shakespeare is in an interesting uh, analogy, which I hadn't thought of before, but I would think about it this way. Unless you're really interpreting these lines the way we continue to interpret Shakespeare, you if you just do Shakespeare kind of as blank verse without any real understanding for the feeling behind it, it would come off very corny as well. And part of what I think tends to happen with noir, which I find highly regrettable as a person who has really uh, focused most of my career on films in the noir vein, is people think that you just have a saxophone play in the background, wear a fedora, do some low-key lighting, and spout off uh, 1930s uh, and 40s dialogue, and you have a noir, and they miss that there's something deeper in the soul of noir, that noir was an art form of the 1940s that came out of incredible societal dilemmas and disruptions. And when we try to say this language without understanding that the original film Detour was shot under World War II wartime restrictions for the film industry and that we were having wounded vets coming home and we were just finding out about the Holocaust for the first time, uh, these words can be very hollow and sound gimmicky when in the original case they were really meant to speak the language of the time. To me, it's sort of the difference between what I will call jazz and smooth jazz. (laughs) And to me, smooth jazz isn't jazz. So, Good point. I'm with you there. Yeah, there are very few films now that can kind of – I'm glad that you brought up Brick. That's definitely one of those and that they buy into it completely in that movie. And I think that's one of the things that is missing when it comes to other films that try to ape this type of dialogue. The one that, the other one that came to my mind was the Hudsucker Proxy and the way that they could use some of this – 50s 40s 30s type of dialogue and delivery and everything but i think they were playing it for laughs a little bit at times but then not at others you know i'm thinking of like the jennifer jason lee kind of uh channeling some of the uh katherine hepburn type uh, delivery but then also bruce campbell with the say what gives i mean that some of that is, is corny, but it's meant to be corny. But yeah, there are too many films where it's just like, oh, God, this rings so hollow. And you would think that they would have learned their lesson. I mean, you can make great films noir uh, without diving into that same patter that they had in these earlier films. You can make, you know, A Night Moves or some of these other, like, neo-noir films. I mean, they're making neo-noir today, and you don't have to ape that you know you can use the same words you can use the same tone but you don't have to use that same delivery well but i think part of what's going on here specifically in the 1992 remake of detour is specifically that you have a producer wade williams who is a well-known collector of films that have fallen out of copyright And part of the rationale behind the film, the thing that I can forgive for why this film exists, is Detour, the 1945 Ulmer film, is a bit of a tragedy because it has fallen into the public domain, which means that most of us have really only seen this on shoddy DVD remakes or on YouTube. And that's really a tragedy because even if it's a low-budget film, in a 35-millimeter print, it would truly be even a better uh, visual spectacle. And in one of the things I read in preparation for this podcast, 
uh, Williams undertook a literal word-for-word adaptation of Goldsmith's script precisely to try to bring Detour back into copyright ownership. So he came up with this weird idea that if he did a shot-for-shot remake of the screenplay, he could start to re-own Detour because uh, for a very uh, personal reason is that Williams actually owns one of the last remaining 35 millimeter negatives of Detour, and he was hoping to actually produce new DVD copies off of his pristine 35mm print, but in order to do that, he needed to reassert copyright, and so the 1992 remake is his desire to attempt to do that, but it really comes off in a very freaky way, especially uh, to just let the audience know, he even went so far as to cast Tom Neal Jr. as Al in this remake. And wow, if you want to, I mean, I, I, I'm not a good enough psychologist to kind of psychoanalyze Williams on this one, but wow, that, that, that's just weird. It was really weird because he looks kind of like his dad, but not really enough at times. And it's just like, and he definitely doesn't have the same delivery. He doesn't have the same chops that Tom Neal had when it came to the delivery of this dialogue, of the voiceover. And unfortunately, there are way too many times where I can hear the different like recording sessions when it came to the voiceovers where things just change so much in tone of the recording itself it's like whoa hey they must have waited a couple weeks in between these two things between like this line of dialogue and this other one you know it it wasn't necessarily a re-loop kind of thing it was just like here's this chunk that was recorded this time and here's this other chunk that was recorded at this other time and it just felt really kind of strange and you're right rob it was weird that it was color it didn't really lend itself to that. And I actually had a harder time. I know that I was watching a VHS transfer of this, but I was having a harder time making out a lot of things in this color version than I did. Even that fog scene from the original detour was easier to see than some of the nighttime shots in this uh, remake of detour. Right. And, and, and that's part uh, Mike that of what I think is at the heart of the types of films that you champion on uh, the projection booth is the remake reminds me that when you come across an authentic piece of cinema, and I don't care whether it's shot for 14 days for less than $100,000 or a $200 million movie, a great film is something to just respect and love and revisit whenever you have an opportunity. And when you see odd remakes that only make you long more for the original, all that kept going through my head as I was watching the remake is the genius of Ulmer is not easy to duplicate. And I think the fog shots are a perfect example of that. And I think too few people recognize that the ability to actually properly light fog on a closed set is cinemagraphically difficult. We just think it's like, turn on the machines, just light it, let's do it. But this is part of the testament of the true genius of Ulmer, who used to work at Ufa, who was friends with Robert Siadmach, Billy Wilder, who knew Fred Zinneman, the cinematographer. This was a guy who knew technically what to do. And a film like Detour actually happens at the midpoint of his career. This isn't some happy accident of a first-time filmmaker just like, wow, look, I made a movie. This was the work of a fairly mature, hardworking person who was used to cranking out multiple films a year, but could do so 
with understanding the instrument he had at his hands. And that's why I spend a lot of my time when I'm debating Detour with people to get them to not think about this as a low-budget film, because this is more, to me, like great rock and roll music, that you can have all the greatest studios in the world, but it's about the singer and the song. And in a film like Detour, you have both. You have Ulmer and Goldsmith's script, and when they come together, the music that emanates from this film is priceless. And you talk about this restaging and how the various things are added back in based on the original script. And this is where I was talking about it being weaker because he adds in all of this Sue stuff in there, the Sue subplot. And then there's also this reveal earlier than later in the original of the sick father who's dying. And I think that that earlier reveal takes away the punch that when it is revealed later – it seems more serendipitous and it seems more, uh, you know, in this, in Vera's head that this is, wow, look what I just stumbled upon, as opposed to it's brought up earlier and then it is brought up again and it just, to me, didn't have the same amount of weight. Now, Rich, you read the script for this. It was reproduced in a um, scenario or I can't remember which magazine it was, but how did that kind of compare versus this remake? No, I mean, the remake is literally the original Martin Goldsmith script because Williams was trying to reassert copyright. So he was actually not faithful to Ulmer's adaptation of the Goldsmith script. He was faithful to the script. What that really does mean is all of this additional Sioux material, which was part of Goldsmith's original construction, make their reappearance. I kind of, you know throw my uh, lot down with Ulmer. I really don't see how this film, say, let's just say the film, instead of being 67 minutes, is 90 minutes. I don't see how adding 23 more minutes of, say, a Sioux, series of Sioux subplots really would give this film any more energy. What Ulmer did is a masterclass in narrative economy, only film the essentials, and nothing that would take away from this film having relentless momentum, everything was thrown out. And the remake shows you, as I think Rob so well described, shows you what would have happened even in the Ulmer original had he not chosen to make those cuts as well. And I would still want to argue that he wasn't just cutting these to the bone because he didn't have enough money to make the film. This is a guy who, if he could figure out how to make it for 67 minutes, if he wanted to, it could have been 90. But it wouldn't have added anything. And that's Ulmer, the storyteller, who in other films that I also urge people to watch more Ulmer films, TCM just had a night dedicated to him. And when you start to see him over and over again, this is a man who really understood storytelling. And, and I think that's the highest compliment you can frequently pay a director is they understand how to give the audience an emotion and uh, have us buy in to that. And the emotion of this film is Alan Vera. The Sue emotion is perfectly fine being off screen. It adds nothing. 
Well, it doesn't help either that Sue, who's been recast as a brunette in here, you know, we had very much that dichotomy of Sue being the pure blonde in the original versus the dark woman of Vera. In this one, she's a brunette. And in this one, she's not very nice. Not very nice at all. And I know that that goes back to the original book and everything. And it goes back to that line I was talking about earlier with Sue just saying, you know, okay, sorry, wedding's off. I'm going out to L.A but in Al's mind that was absolutely fine in some regard and he is kind of idolizing her and talking about how great she is through the rest of the movie and on this quest to see her and when we do get to see what Sue is really like in these LA scenes she's uh, a schemer she's just maybe one step up from Avira so it's almost like he would be going from the frying pan into the fire if he actually did make it to see Sue so I think it does make a lot of sense that she was just out of there she needed to be this symbol for him this this unattainable goal for him you don't want the audience sitting there going oh man i hope al never reaches her because she is just a piece of work and that's what she appears to be in this remake version so goldsmith yeah he did a good job of adapting his own work and he would go on to do a whole lot of great writing and screenwriting and everything. I mean, he was the guy who has story credit for The Narrow Margin, which is one of my favorites, and even the remake of that. And again, talk about a good remake, going from the original Narrow Margin of 52 to the remake in 1990. I mean, you don't get better than Gene Hackman in some of these films. So, But this is, uh, you know, just absolutely one of those good remakes versus what detour is doing but it just he he did a great job adapting but ulmer did the good job had the smarts to cut out what didn't need to be there as you said i feel kind of responsible i mean maybe if i hadn't said all those awful things well well maybe this wouldn't have happened nobody's fault i was just tired lost control of the car that's all anyway i'll be out of here on friday Lance, I've been so worried since this happened. I haven't slept a wink. Really, Sue? Well, of course, silly. Well, I'm sorry about the other evening. I suppose it was my fault. Sue, was I really that bad? No. Well, you know I didn't mean those things. Well, I liked you from the very first time you came into the restaurant. In fact, I, I was kind of hoping you'd ask me out. Really? Really. it i'm just not myself when i drink and i certainly wouldn't want you to think that i i go around accommodating every man that asks me out oh i'd never think that of you well and i think it also just goes to what makes noir so memorable noir to me is not a film form that is highly dependent on plot there are just so many famous stories about how confusing uh, noir films are. I mean, I've, I, you know, one of my favorite films out of the past, uh, no matter how many times I watch it, there are a lot of narrative threads that are completely open and subject to interpretation. Noir, to me, is a film form of brutal fate. And that's what I think brought Ulmer, the German emigre, working on the margins of Hollywood to this material. I think, you know, I, I, I tend to try to avoid autobiographical readings of films, but in this one, it feels almost inevitable that 
in many, many ways, the reason why I think this film lingers in the minds of so many people is that Al is speaking in many ways for Ulmer's journey in Hollywood himself. Um, I still love the line we didn't talk about in the film that, you know, Al is a kind of piano prodigy. And when Sue tells him, You're going to make Carnegie Hall yet, Al? Yeah, as a janitor. I'll make my debut in the basement. And that's a kind of bitter line that I think only a filmmaker working on the margins of Hollywood would put in as a kind of sick in joke of working at a studio like PRC probably did feel for Ulmer at times like being a janitor in Carnegie Hall when his friends like Robert Siadmach and Billy Wilder in this exact same period are doing films like uh, Double Indemnity and the Killers. The part that just thrills me is that for a tenth of the budget that those two guys had, when he was sitting at the table with those guys, he could say, I'll, I'll up you one detour. And uh, it was a hell of an ante. Well, you know, he did make it to Carnegie Hall because in three years' time, he would be making a movie called Carnegie Hall, but again, making it on the cheap. Unfortunately, that was kind of his fate. And I really do have to recommend the biography that Mr. Eisenberg wrote about Almer because it is just an absolutely fascinating story. And there are those kind of uh, autobiographical details that kind of work their way into his works. And what we're planning on doing is uh, sometime in 2015 is we're going to do a episode on the Black Cat, which was kind of Ulmer's, in some sense of the word, it was his greatest moment and also his greatest failure afterwards, just what kind of went on in his personal life, which kind of condemned him into making these movies, these on-the-cheap movies. But again, you know, you find so many great things about his films. He is one of the most interesting filmmakers that is out there. And even when you have kind of a, a quote unquote clunker with some of his stuff, which I'm not saying that Detour is at all. I'm thinking of something like, you know, The Wife of Monte Cristo or some of these films. I mean, those still are more interesting and more captivating than what you're going to see, you know, 99% of the time if you go out and see something in the theater these days. I think people get hung up way too much on budget, and especially in our modern era more than ever. It's like, well, how much money do they spend on that, and how are the effects and everything? And as I've talked about on many an episode, and go back and listen to our First Blood episode, one of my favorite films I've seen in the last five to ten years was made on less than $100 in one guy's apartment. It doesn't matter how much money you spend on a movie. All that matters is how good the story is and how well they bring you into that world. Yeah, and I think, you know, Eisenberg's book just does a tremendous job uh, showing how um, history has ill-served Ulmer by calling him the king of the B picture, because Eisenberg does a great reconstruction of his career prior to 1940, when in fact, you know, he was working on major Hollywood films when he was working in theater with major artistic talents like Max Reinhardt. And you get this sense of a person whose personal life had the same mysterious force of fate that befell Al in the film Detour, because really there's a whole nother fantasy version of Ulmer's life where he would be as famous as Billy Wilder and his contemporaries, except for some weird problems in his personal life and also certain elements of temperament that he could never quite resolve in his own life. But I think 
people should recognize that Ulmer might have worked in what is called a poverty row studio for most of his professional career. But make no mistake about it, he was an A-lister talent. We can't lose sight of that fact. And I agree with Rob. It's never the money. It is always the story. You know, what we often find is that people are not working in poverty row in terms of money, but they're working in poverty in terms of ideas. <laughs> and that's what I see most of the time in, you know, big budget film that comes down the pipe. And I'm not saying that it's part of our current era, because if you go back and you look at most of the stuff that Hollywood was putting out, maybe 30s, 40s, 50s, most of that stuff is forgettable entertainment. There's only a few films each year that, you know, we're still talking about. 50, 60, and now 70 years on when you talk about something like Detour. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. to let you know I'm not selling anything. His name's Charlie. Charlie? Yeah, Charlie. That's his name, Charlie. Really? Tell me about him. He likes me. He likes me very much. Your boyfriend, Charlie. He's a cop. trigger. Nobody's going to call it murder. It's going to be law enforcement. Wait, Charlie, don't do it. Not yet. If I tell you where it is, what guarantee do I have that you won't drill me anyway? Sorry, we'll be back next week with another chapter in our Noir November when we talk about Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place. We'll be joined by the Eastman House's Jared Case. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Rich Edwards. Rich, last time you were on the show, it was uh, two years ago, and we were talking about Shoot the Piano Player, where you talked about the book that you co-authored, The Maltese Touch of Evil. What have you been up to lately, sir? Still collaborating from time to time with Shannon Clute, who's my partner in podcasting. We haven't produced any of our series out of the past for a while, but uh, listeners of your show, if they want to just hear more uh, discussions of noir-only films, they can go check out my podcast at Out of the Past, Investigating Film Noir. It's uh, both at a website and at iTunes. Still looking into different films. I think what's always interesting to me is that a lot of my recent scholarship is looking a lot more at noir television, especially a show like Breaking Bad, which I think might be the most noir show in television history. So, you know, I always try to keep uh, something going on in 
noir, um, both the classic noirs and all of the great artists still working in a film style that I just absolutely adore. Well, thanks so much for coming on again, Rich, and thanks to everyone for listening to the show. If you want to repay the favor, head over to our website, projection-booth.com. Click over to iTunes, leave us some stars and feedback, and make sure to watch out because that cold finger of fate could put the finger on you at any time.
guess. Fate, or some mysterious force, can put the finger on you or me for no good reason at all. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.